Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, good morning, everyone. Is that that too loud back there? Okay. All right. I'm glad we have it. Um, So today is December 10th. This is the 14th lesson in the book of Ecclesiastes. So glad to to see you all here. I imagine others will join us in a few minutes, but that's okay. We'll We'll get started. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that's in our laps or in our devices and thank you for keeping it for us and bringing it to us that today we can look in it and literally read your words to us Uh, and we thank you for that we pray that you would give us uh, the blessing of your spirit that we can humble ourselves before it and receive what you have for us in your blessed word we pray that uh, through the study and thinking about your word today that we would that our knowledge of God would grow that our joy and delight in our Savior and, and his gospel would, uh, would grow and, and uh, uh, be what more what it should be in our lives I thank you for each person that's in the class today and others that will join us I pray you would encourage them and uh, minister to them and give them uh, your joy and we pray in Jesus name Amen well, we are uh, closing in on this book. I really like that, like that feeling. And looking forward to today and then next week we'll be, Lord willing, we'll be done with the book of Ecclesiastes. So last week, you may remember, we, uh, we ended with this idea that um, Solomon says, uh, you don't know very much and you can't control very much, but don't let that that um, lack of understanding or control uh, paralyze you to keep you from acting and being responsible. Um, we, we quoted uh, Walter Kaiser, the duty is ours, the results are God's. Uh, so God is good, take action, do, do your duty. That, and that's very liberating to us, I think. And we had a, a little bit on uh, biblical decision making. That was encouraging to me to uh, to, to look at that again. So now um, we're going to begin in chapter 11, Ecclesiastes 11. We're going to look at verses uh, 7 and 8. And um, let me read them first and then we'll, we'll look at it. Verse 7 Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But Let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Well, I I have an error in your notes. I said, this is a parable. It's not a parable, it's a proverb. So fix that if you want to. I fixed it in my my notes. This little statement, light is sweet. And uh, the commentators I read said, this is really a, that Solomon's turned a corner here. You know, other times he said, life under the sun is vain and empty and you know it doesn't go anywhere but he seems to be seeing things from a different perspective as uh, David Gibson said Ecclesiastes urges us to think about life under the sun 
from the perspective of life above the sun. And this is, notice, it's interesting, isn't it, that he says light is sweet. So when you think about sweet, what um, sense do you think of? Taste. Yeah, you know, taste. You don't think of sight. And we can, think, we can say something is sweet to look at, but, uh, but the, the, uh, you know, the primary understanding is, light, is, is the taste. It, and I, I thought about that verse, uh, Psalm 34, 8, taste and see. So that's interesting, isn't it? So now you're seeing and tasting with your eyes in a sense. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That seems to be the spirit of what he's saying here. Um, it's a very positive, a very positive note. Interestingly, um, it, it may be even that he's referring to the sunrise. When you see the sun come up, you'll realize the sweetness and the goodness, <clears throat> the goodness of God. Um, this, this is, uh, notice this has a little bit of a creation imagery to it, re re reference to creation. And that's going to be a theme that comes through all the way down to, uh, well, all of our text today, if we, if we get through all of it, is this idea of the creation involved here. Well, verse uh, 8, the preacher says, let's see, who says this? Uh, Craig Bartholomew. The preacher says, rejoice in life today. That's this carpe diem. Carpe diem sees the, sees the day. But remember what I've taught you about the inevitability of life. So he's, you know, this is uh, maybe, maybe the last carpe diem. There's, there may be one in next week also. But remember, he's done a bunch of these. A bunch of these carpe diem, seize the day, live for the day, recognize God's goodness, recognize your limitations as a creature, recognize you don't know very much, you, don't, you can't control the future, you don't, you don't know the future, but because God is good, then live, uh, live today. It's interesting, this is the first carpe diem passage that uh, has the idea of remember. Before it's always the present, but now he's saying, remember, and I think he's just saying, remember all that I've taught you now. In this carpe diem passage, remember uh, all that I've taught you about life and about the sureness of death. Um, in fact, well, look at this, this note here, the key words, the, the two words in verse 8 are rejoice and remember. So rejoice governs verses 9 and 10, and the idea of remembering governs chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. So you can see that if you look at the first word in verse 9, it's rejoice. Look at the first word in verse 1 of chapter 12, it's remember. So he's got these two, uh, these two concepts. And so now, um, he does something really interesting. He turns his attention directly to a, maybe one particular young person, young man, but to, to youth uh, in general. I said advice to youth, uh, and then I put in parentheses, oh, this is advice to all of us. In fact, I was wondering, uh, I didn't look at the Hebrew word to see how old this youth is, but uh, I think he's almost saying, uh, and you'll see this as we go, because he, he's warning this person about what's coming, old age is coming. Uh, he'd say, you don't think about it very much, but it is coming, and your body's going to wear out. 
Um, so I wonder if youth is anybody that has not come to that place where the body literally begins to to deconstruct in, in a sense. I don't know, but you'll, I think you'll see that uh, this advice is good for all of us. So verses 9 and 10, uh, begin early in life to live life to the full by rejoicing in God's uh, good gifts. And so he's just saying to this young person, and you kind of get the idea, this is a, I think the, the youth in the book of Proverbs is somebody that's teenager, maybe marrying age, you know, young person. This isn't a little three-year-old child. This is somebody that's older that's begun to think about, uh, begin to think about life. And he gets uh, pretty, well, let me read 9 and 10 to us. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Which looks like, you know, if you don't package that in the context of the whole Bible, it looks like, well, just do whatever you want to and, and follow your heart. And that's a dangerous thing, isn't it? Because the Bible says some very scary things about uh, the evil of our hearts. But I think his point here is, uh, you, it's okay to enjoy life as a young person. Now do it in the way that I've taught you to do it, but it's good for you to, um, to rejoice and enjoy life. Um, but notice the last phrase there, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So in, there's a couple of ways to, enter, to, uh, to uh, interpret that, but one is what seems to be obvious. You know, enjoy yourself, but there's a counterbalance of moral responsibility uh, in doing this. I think uh, one of my notes said, this is not atheistic hedonism, but pleasure under the watchful and judging eye of the sovereign God. But anyway, this, uh, this, is, a, this is a clear encouragement to the young person to fulfill your desires, but do it in the way that I've taught you, rejoice in what God provides. Now look back at 9-7. Nine, nine, this is real clear here, I think. Ecclesiastes 9-7. So this is another one of those carpe diem passages. Go and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. And we looked at that when we looked at that text. And that is that, that God approves of your enjoying the things that he's provided. So enjoy them. And so I think that's... Oh, they're having some extra music over there. there you go, oh, there you go, Scott. Can we, help, can we do it here? This is a uh, rehearsal for you too. We're going to sing that a little bit, I think. That's good. All right. But anyway, saying to the young person, start early in this process. Begin to to uh, rejoice in uh, rejoice in the good things that God has provided, and it's okay uh, to do that. Now, verse ten. <clears throat> remove vexation. I'm going to come back to the end of verse nine in a minute, but. Verse 10, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. 
for youth and the dawn of life or, or vanity. That word uh, vexation, we've, we've seen it four times, I think, already in the book of Ecclesiastes. The first time we saw it was when uh, back in chapter 2, I think, where, where Solomon says, for wisdom is great, but if you have wisdom, you're going to have vexation because you're going to know about life and it's going to be frustrating to you and can cause vexation. Um, so this idea of vexation is um, limitation, I mean, uh, vexation or anger or frustration. It's, he's saying, uh, he's trying to teach this young man the things he's been teaching us, and that is you can't control everything that happens. Or you can control very little of what happens around you. You don't know the reason why God does everything. You don't know what's, what's going to happen tomorrow. So accept that and don't get bitter and angry and frustrated about it. Now that would be a great young person to understand that, wouldn't it? To have, I mean, it'd be a great adult to understand that too, but to help young people begin to understand that. And then put away pain from your body. You may notice uh, the, note, the ESV note says evil. Put away evil from your body. And it, it may be that that's a Hebrew parallelism. Put away vexation from your thinking and put away evil from your body. And it may begin to help us to see that that, uh, that frustration and vexation is sinful. It's evil. So we need to put that away. And that brings me to, uh, um, to our friend uh, David Gibson. By the way, uh, now, I've made a joke about two or three times he skipped a chapter. And I was just assuming, because they were difficult chapters, I thought, well, that's convenient for an author to skip me. But uh, Therese did some research. She knows somebody knows him, right? And, and um, the reason that those chapters aren't in, this, in his book is because this was originally a little preaching series he did on a Sunday night. And, and another elder was doing some of the other chapters, so he, he just printed the ones that he did. And so, anyway, I feel much better. I had never had felt bad about him, but I understand that. I understand that now. Uh, what did you say? He, he preached these, this series to 30 people on, a sun, on Sunday nights several years ago and printed a little, man, you know, a little uh, pamphlet of it, and it sold just a few copies. And then Crossway heard about it and published it, and now it's gone going crazy, right. but I'm sure glad that it has. It's been really, if you have to buy a, if you want to buy a book on Ecclesiastes, this is the one I would recommend. It's not a, uh, it's not a technical commentary. It doesn't do a lot of, you can tell he's done some Hebrew work in the background, but it's like a, it's a sermon. These are sermons, and so same way Justin does, he, he won't give you, you know, all the Greek background study that he's done, but you can tell he's done that. But anyway, it makes sense now that this is, these are sermons and not not intended to be a technical commentary. But here's here's something he brings out that I think is really amazing to me. I would have never thought about it here. Where he says, uh, where Solomon says in uh, verse 9 at the end, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. And he, at he's humble enough to say, I didn't come up with this idea myself. I uh, He quotes... Uh, another uh, Bible scholar, Ken, yeah, a fellow named uh, Douglas Jones. He wrote a technical commentary, I mean, a technical paper 
on the idea of, uh, of joy. And, and so, so what, uh, what Gibson, the way Gibson interprets this, and I think he gets it from this, from this fellow Douglas Jones, says that part of the judgment that God will bring to us is how we have enjoyed the things that he has provided for us. And he, and he cites this passage that I want us to look at, Deuteronomy 28. So turn with me back to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy uh, 28. So, if you look at the big context of Deuteronomy 28, uh, these are, this is that, you know, it's obviously at the end of Deuteronomy, and so Moses is saying, here's the blessings for obedience, here's the curses for disobedience, and he's going, going through that. And notice what he says in Deuteronomy 28, one of the bases of God's judgment, let's begin in verse uh, 45. Deuteronomy 28, 45. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring. Now verse uh, 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. So, notice what verse 47 says. I've given you the abundance of all things. Talk about foreseeing into the promised land. I'm going to give you all the abundance of all things. And if you don't serve me uh, with joy, with joyfulness and gladness of heart, then I'm going to bring judgment on you. Notice verse uh, 48. Therefore, you should, if you don't, if you don't serve me with joyfulness and gladness, and this is not stiff upper lip. I'm going to do you know whatever God says, whether I like it or not. He said, if you don't serve me with joy and gladness, then you're going to serve somebody else. And notice what he says in verse 48. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And he'll put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. So 47 and 48 is just the flip of the, the opposite. He's serve me with joy and gladness because of all the abundance I've given you. If you don't, you will serve your enemies and you'll be lacking and there'll be a scarcity of what you would like to have. Well, let that sink in for a moment. That, that it's a commandment of God to enjoy Him and to serve Him. And not just serve Him, but to serve Him with gladness and joy and rejoicing. And God will judge how we enjoy what He provided for our enjoyment. Enjoyment is a gift from God, and we are responsible how we use uh, God's gift. 
<laughs> and then uh, Gibson brings out this idea, or maybe it was a guy he's quoted, on Christmas Day, or it could be anything, when, when, you, when that child opens that, uh, uh, that gift, what do you want to see in their eyes or in their behavior? And those scrolls eventually ended up turning well, you, you know what you don't want to see? Ooh, I, I don't want this thing. You know, what's next or something like that? What do you want to see? Excitement. Excitement and gratitude, gratitude and joy and, and delight. It was interesting that the, the example he used was uh, Buzz Lightyear. Sawyer's a big Buzz Lightyear guy. He said, if you give your, your son or grandson Buzz Lightyear, you don't want it to stay in the box pristinely placed on the on the uh, shelf. You want it to, you know, be buzzing around and conquering universes and getting torn up and shooting him in the eye. He shot himself in the eye with Buzz Lightyear. So we didn't want that part. But 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 just think about that. Uh, if we're that way, how much more is God that way? Let's see. He says some other other things. Uh, we enjoy seeing how people enjoy the gifts we give them. That when you think about it, a relationship is being formed. <clears throat> when you give a gift to someone, you've begun a relationship. It's kind of like you, in tennis, you hit the ball across the court. And what do you expect? You expect the ball to come back. You expect something to come back. And that is the greatest delight, isn't it? When we give a gift, it's not only giving a gift, but to see the great delight you know, that came back. I, uh, well, maybe like all of you, we gave a little, a little gift to, the, to all the graduates. And um, in fact, I see Luke back there. Boy, it meant a lot to us that Luke sent us a card. I, don't, I didn't have it memorized, Luke, but it said, and Braden probably did too, but anyway, uh, I don't remember. But I remember it felt good to get the card, and it said something like, thanks so much for the gift, and I've already used it, you know, for this or that or something like that. It, it uh, completed the relationship of that transaction. And I, my, my wife, Dixie, is real good about sending cards and little gifts to cousins and all kinds of people. And she hits the ball across the net and it doesn't come back. In fact, yesterday I was telling her about this. She said, well, how long are we going to keep doing that? And I don't know. That's up to you. But, but something's wrong, isn't it? When, we give, when you give a gift to someone and nothing comes back, there's something wrong. If, that, if that's the case with us as people, then how much more with God? Let's see, what else? So, yeah, so give that some thought. Anybody have a comment or an experience you want to? Have you seen that true happen? It's pretty self-intuitive, isn't it? That's really how life, how life is. Um, the other thing, when I ask what, what's to be the response when someone receives a gift, it should be joy, but um, Josh and others said uh, gratitude, uh, thanksgiving. Uh, I don't know if you know the name Heath Lambert. Heath Lambert is a pastor in Florida now, but at one time he was the... He was the executive director of um, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, so we know him in that, in that role. And he's written a book, and I don't want to divert us. Let me take this little detour and come back real quick. 
He's written a book called Finally Free, and it's the best book I've ever seen on helping men primarily get free from pornography. But one of the things, he said he has like six chapters, and one of the things he says in the, in the chapter is uh, using gratitude to fight pornography. I remember seeing the chapter that I, I mean the title of that, I thought, what's that about? But, but he talks about gratitude, and I'll just read you a quote that I, so you can kind of take it, you can, uh, you don't have to think about it in the context of pornography, just think about it in the context of, of gratitude. But you can see why he would write this for a man that's struggling with pornography. Gratitude fuels gladness and multiplies it. Isn't that right? Gratitude fuels gladness and multiplies it. It is the logic of gratitude to be thankful for what you have instead of longing for what you don't have. So you can see the angle for pornography, but it's true for anything, isn't it? Gratitude, uh, it is the logic of gratitude to be thankful for what you have instead of longing for what what you don't have. Um, I'll read a little bit of, of Gibson here to you now. He's so good, sometimes I think I would just like to read the whole chapter to you, but that wouldn't be, probably may get tired of that. He says, not to live gladly, joyfully, and not to drink deeply from the wells of abundant goodness that God has lavished on us is sin. And it is a sin because it is a denial of who He is. It is a denial of God's covenant blessing. It is a repetition of the first sin, the primal sin of pride. Adam and Eve came to believe that God is withholding something from them, and in taking it upon themselves to get it, they were charging God with not being good to them. Um, well, I think I'll just, I just stop there, but, but that's, uh, that's the point, that grumpiness is not just a personality trait, it's a, it's a sin. And when we complain about our circumstances, uh, if we're good Bible students and we believe in the sovereignty of God, then who are we complaining to? If we're grumpy and discontent with our circumstances, then we are we are grumpy toward God. And um, by implication, you're saying God's not good. I think so. Yeah, yeah. that's a serious thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. How are you defining complaining, though? Because God wants us to express our worries and concerns. Okay, that's good. Yeah, good. Uh, good, Jonathan. I think we can do that, yet without, and that, that can even be kind of a form of lament, we can do that without attacking the character of God. We can complain and, you know, explain with, Remember a third of the a third of the psalms are those lamentation complaints, but they but they fall they, they fall just short of blaspheming God, uh, and they're pretty strong sometimes. Like where are you, God? You said you'd do this, and you hadn't. It looked like you'd done that. That's okay, but but it's not blasphemy to the character of God. Like Job said some rather strong things to God, but at the end, God said He spoke correctly, and it was His friends who needed. <coughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah, Jonathan, good. Job, we're going to see this if you join me in Job. Job uh, said some strong things, you know, in his complaints, but um, they weren't blasphemous. They were just complaints about his circumstances and not understanding what God had done.
and the writer of Ecclesiastes is afraid, well, yeah, deal with it. You're not going to understand a lot of what God has done, but we shouldn't complain about his character because of that. So I just made this note. Grumpiness and complaining and discontentedness is not only a bad personality trait, uh, it is sinful because it blames God uh, with his character. Well, we could stay there longer. Uh, but let's go on to chapter 12. It, it's interesting. It's interesting to me why he addresses young people at the end of his book. Again, we can all grow and learn from, from what, he, what he says to them, but it is interesting to me. And the way he does it in the first six verses of, of uh, chapter 12 is really interesting. I, I'm, I'm excited to look at it. So notice what he said. I'll read verse, uh, verse 1. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Now, notice an observation here from, from uh, in chapter 12, 1 through 6, the word before is, used, is brought three times. So notice that the writer is saying, you need to get this right before, before, before uh, the dissolution of your life and before you know, things are going to get hard, young man. And you need to begin to get this right before, and then he's going to talk. You know, the verses one through verses two through six are about the um, uh, about old age, and then finally about death in verse uh, verse six. So remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Um, notice my point there. Many many scholars made this point. Remember is much more than intellectual acknowledgement of God as creator. <coughs> Allow the notion of God as creator to shape one's view of life and one's handling of life's enigmas. I kind of thought about it in the same way that we, that we, that we receive the Lord's Supper. Remember what the Lord Jesus said, whenever you take of this, do this in remembrance of me. He's not just saying about remember me in, in a historical perspective about uh, you know, just an individual in your past. He says, remember me and who I am and what I've provided for you in, in our relationship together. So, um, so obviously, when he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth, it means more than just, oh yeah, I remember that creator. So, think with me a few minutes. What are the implications of a young man or a young woman remembering there, notice it's it's a possessive pronoun. Remember, not the Creator. Remember, your Creator. So, just think about that a minute. There's a bunch of stuff we could talk about. What are the implications of that? What is what would happen for a young man if he did that? They would waste less of their lives. Okay, why would he waste less? He wouldn't be seeking for fulfillment in temporal things that was fleeting. Okay. And he wouldn't be surprised when he, he learned that they were fleeting. Okay. Good. He would start at the beginning knowing that he's got a finite time and Good. he's called by God to use it for eternal purposes. Good. So 
the idea of God as creator helps him to see that, doesn't it? Good. Right? What else does it help us to? What else would he think about when he thinks about his creator? Um, that when you study of, of the Apocrypha, he also obviously that he was created. Okay. That he has a creator. He's a, yeah, he's a creature. <laughs> yeah. 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 He was created. He, he didn't, he hadn't always existed. What is that? Uh, oh, Psalm 100, verse 2. Uh, it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. That seems like a simple statement, but that's a pretty important statement, isn't it? Particularly in the in the understanding of what's going on in our culture. We don't have that concept of a personal creator. Okay? Um, anything else about thinking about your creator in the days of your youth? Hold it. How today, before I even get up out of bed, I can glorify God through following His plan in my life. Okay, good. Yeah, did you hear that? Holy said, even before I get out of bed in the morning, when I think about my Creator, I can focus on how to glorify Him by fulfilling His plan. You know, if you create something, you have ownership of it, don't you? You do what you want to with it, and that ought to get our attention. God owns us. He owns us in a second way in our in our redemption, but He owns us uh, as our Creator. It speaks of our creaturely limitations, doesn't it? Uh, so much is, is said there. Well, so my next statement there. Notice uh, this is the first before in the in the passage, also in verses two, and then closes it in, in uh, verse six. The days of the relentless encroachment of death and death itself will close the door of opportunity for serving God and rejoicing in this life. The end of life has decreasing pleasures because of uh, increasing difficulties. So, uh, I picked this up from uh, this fellow Proban. He says the preacher, the preacher challenges the youth with stark language of his inevitable future, and thus the exhortation to remember his Creator now, the one who created him. And this is interesting. The one day he will uncreate him. Uh, we'll see that here in a few minutes. So now, uh, verse 2, the undoing reversing of creation as a metaphor of the uncreating of a person's life. Um, verse 2, look at verse 2. It says, now remember this, young man, uh, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened. If you read uh, Genesis 1.16, he, that, he creates those very things, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And they were enlightened. And they, brought, they brought light. But now, this is a meteorological weather uh, metaphor for the, for the declining physical life, the declining life of the body. By the way, these next few verses, um, they're just so beautiful, but they're talking about the the dilapidation of the physical body, not particularly the, not the spiritual life. A, a person can lose all of their physical qualities and still have a vibrant spiritual life. So we'll talk about that maybe at the end of our time. But so verse two is a reverse of the creation. The creation is being reversed. The, 
the sun, moon, and stars that got light in Genesis, uh, what's that, 2, uh, 116, now they go dark. Notice something else that he says. I mean, it's kind of like he says to the, to the young person, one day your lights are going to go out. God's going to turn the switch and your lights are going out. But notice the next thing he says, um, and the clouds return after the rain. Now, wait a minute. When we have a storm come through and it rains, what do we usually see after the rain? See the sunshine. But he says, not here. The sun will not come out after the rain and the storms. So he's, he's reversing normal meteorological uh, activity in the, in the um, um, and the and the the um, the creation story. I read one fellow said this. I thought it was really good. Um, you know, there's so much about youth that we should love, and you know they know everything, right? Um, what did what did one guy say? Uh, his father told him, you know everything now when you're 16, but when you're 25, I'll begin to get smarter again. So we probably all learn that. Um, but in youth, think of this, in youth, time heals and restores. You know, our little granddaughter, uh, Amy Lou, she can, she can jump off of a table and cut her head in a few days, she's fine. If I jump off a table and cut my, in fact, I cut my finger a month ago and it's just now healed up. It took a month for that thing to heal up. So for in youth, time heals and restores, but in old age, time brings more bodily troubles and challenges. Right? I think old people should teach this book to young people. <laughs> So here's my, so now we're going to read this, this poem. It is just so beautiful. The metaphor shifts now. The metaphor shifts from a meteorological um, metaphor, example of, of the uncreation. And now it shifts to, a, to the dilapidation of an old house and maybe includes some of the city itself. But here's my... Here's my question for you. Well, let me read. Let me read the poem. It's so, it is so beautiful. We don't want to overanalyze it. And I don't think poets like us to do that. But I gave you. Uh, I copied from Walter Kaiser his his analysis of the different parts. But let me read it to you and just enjoy the beauty of this of this poem. And the day. And so keep in mind, he's describing an old house that's literally falling down. One time it was a beautiful edifice, people lived there, but now the house is dilapidated, it's falling, falling down. Verse 3, In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, and the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Isn't that beautiful? I just love, love that, uh, that poem. If you're older, 
I'm not gonna look at anybody, but if you're older, you can read yourself at that point. <laughs> Maybe that's not very funny, but um, why, why, why did Solomon write this poem for this young man? I don't know the answer, but just think about it for, you know, thought about it a little bit. Why did he do that? And why was this the way he wants to get his attention? When you're young, it seems like you'll always be that way. So it can pay to think about what things will eventually be like if you live that long. Good. That's really good. You think life never ends, right? That's good. So he's drawing him a picture. Maybe the old, maybe the young guy's seen an old, old house that's falling down, and so he can begin to, you know, to relate to it in, in that in that way. And Solomon's saying, "That old house, that's you. You will you will fall apart uh, like that one day." Any other thoughts? Why would he do that? Why would he? Why would he end his book like this to get the attention of young people? I don't know. Um, but somehow he's connected. It's another way of describing essentially what would happen right before he dies. So he's been telling them the whole time to live with the understanding that you're going to die. And it seems like a restatement of that. Now in your youth, knowing not only that death is coming, but there will be a time that all the stuff that you take for granted is not there. Yeah, good. And maybe he can give you a visual image of what that could be like. That's good. Okay. Well, beautiful the way he's done it. I think it's just wonderful. Well, I'm, we're not going to go through all of these. It'd be, I'm not going to go through any of them. It'd be fun to look at these uh, uh, these allegorical meanings of the, uh, as, at least as far as how Walter Kaiser has done it. And I think they're pretty, pretty clear about, uh, about that. Uh, the almond tree blossoms. Apparently almond tree blossoms are white. Is that right? That makes sense. Uh, the grasshopper drags itself along. Grasshoppers don't drag themselves along, they usually hop along, but now he's just barely getting getting by. Um, the last one is an interesting one. It's, it's literally, the, the word paperberry is in the text, is in the Hebrew text, but most common, most translators don't translate caperberry because the caperberry was known as a, uh, um, as a desire enhancer, if I can say it that way, that in a in a sensitive way. Um, so they just say, well, his desire fails. That could be food, or it could be intimate relations. That those things will fail. Okay. Well, uh, I didn't know what to call the last part there, verses six and seven. So I just called it death. Um, now, verse 6, most memorably of all, the pictures of verse 6 capture the beauty and fragility of the human frame, a masterpiece as us, our body, a masterpiece delicately wrought as any work of art, yet as breakable as a piece of earthenware and as useless in the end as a broken, uh, a broken wheel. That's from a fellow named Kidner. So here's the picture in verse, verse 6. Before the so verse six literally describes physical death. That's what we're seeing here. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken, the understanding there is that the golden bowl is a is a lamp. It's a lantern, and it's being held up by a silver cord. So notice the beauty of it. It's not just an 
earthen vessel and a piece of string. It's a silver cord and a, bro and a, and a golden bowl. So it shows the beauty and the dignity of the human life that God has given to us. Uh, but it's held by, a, even though there was a silver, uh, a, a silver, what does he call it? Um, silver cord, yet uh, it's very tentative. And when it breaks, the, the globe, which represents, the, the light represents our life, when it breaks, uh, and that's death, and it falls, and the life is gone. The other picture is, uh, a, uh, and it gets a little confusing here, even the Hebrew guys weren't sure what to do with it, but the other picture seems to be a picture not of light, but of water. And so this is a, a vessel that was used to uh, get water out of a, out of a well, out of a fountain. But the picture is, there's the broken, the, the, somebody's pulled up the, the, the water, but it's broken and now what was inside has flowed out. So it's the idea of life flowing, uh, flowing out. Um, so look at verse 7. We're going to run out of time. But just look at verse 7 and notice verse 7 is the reversing of the creation of man. Remember in, in uh, Genesis 2-7, God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And look now at verse, that was Genesis 2-7. Now look at Ecclesiastes 12-7. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So he, he literally un, he, he's literally uncreated. And so you can see why this, this refers back to verse 1. Remember your creator. He's created you. He's going to uncreate you one day. You can be sure. You can be sure of that. So here's uh, Gibson. One day you will come undone. God's curse of creation in response to the fall means time will see you unmade. But the preacher of Ecclesiastes is taking you by the hand and gently asking, before that day comes, how then will you live? Well, um, we're going to have to end there. But uh, Dr. Gibson. He does something I've never seen him do before. He quoted he quoted another author for four pages in his book. I can't remember his. Uh, his uh, he was a 19th century Presbyterian pastor named James Russell Miller, who wrote an essay for young people. And it kind of flows along here. But here's an interesting thing that he said. Maybe you can think about this, and, and we'll pick up here next week as we close out our study. That. In the same way we have some part in building our physical body, our physical house, we're also building a spiritual house. And he, he makes some great comments about um, the, the house, the spiritual house you live in at the end of your life is the one you've built all of your life. So you just think about that. He said, the, the pillow that you put your head on is the one you've stuffed full of stuff all of your life. So he's talking there about the spiritual side of, uh, of our death. But anyway, we'll pick up for that next week. So next week, Lord willing, we'll finish up this good book.